Let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the joy of your spirit. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I told you last week that we were on this journey in Advent where we started near the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, just before Jesus' passion, and heard a sort of catastrophic uh, prediction. Uh, And then we moved a little bit further to the front of the Gospel, and we heard another story that talked about John the Baptist. And today... Today, we finally are dipping our toe into the stories of the birth narratives, especially as told in Luke. And I love this story. I love this story because it's just so real to life, isn't it? I mean, I remember when my sister got pregnant with her first child. Well, I remember when she got pregnant with her second child, too, but I remember the first (laughs) child. I bet you can remember similar circumstances, can't you? I mean, and for some of the women present today, it wasn't someone else's pregnancy, it was your own, right? For me, it was so wonderful to be with my sister. And so in those nine months, I went from Bryan College Station to Austin as often as I could because I just wanted to be with her. It was, it was mystical. And our family, our, my parents and my younger sister and I, we were just, and my grandparents, were just so filled with excitement about this baby coming. And in the fullness of time, my sister Kay delivered a baby boy and named him Hudson. I was out of town when he was born. And so my parents went to my home there in, in, in Bryan, and Papa Hutt couldn't find any note paper. However, he did find some masking tape in a drawer, and he put three things of masking tape on my kitchen counter and wrote, baby boy, born 10-31-81, Hudson August Miller, grandparents gone to Austin. (laughs) So this story about Mary and Elizabeth is one of our holy scriptures that we could easily say really happened. They really were real people. They really did meet in a Judean hillside homestead. But if we do that, if we lock this story down to a literal interpretation, then what we risk is that, that it took place only, only in first century rural Judea. If we interpret it literally, it took place between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and it doesn't ever happen again. To do so is to miss the intent of the writer of the Gospel of Luke. Because if you read the whole of Luke, you will discover that Luke had a bigger vision, a greater understanding, a boundless, infinite, eternal story to tell. And it begins here. The backstory is, of course, that Mary had a mystical experience of encountering the archangel Gabriel. The angel brought her good news, news that her cousin Elizabeth, who was elderly 
and had been barren, old, like the matriarch Sarah, of Sarah and Abraham, the sort of archetypal birth story, even in her old age, Elizabeth has become pregnant. The angel also brings Mary some very bad news, that she too will become pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's work in her. It's bad news because she is only betrothed to Joseph, her fiancé, not married to him. The bad news, because to be pregnant and not married in that first century meant that she could be stoned to death. So is it any wonder that Mary left with haste, the scripture says, with haste to go see her cousin Elizabeth? There's a lots of reason for that. She is likely frightened and feels vulnerable. She probably needs some time and space to wrap her head around what has happened to her. And it may be that her parents sent her off to see Elizabeth because she would be safe there, hopefully. And it should be noted here that Elizabeth herself, um, because she is old and has become pregnant, is a kind of outcast. Things like that just don't happen to women of a certain age. It may also be that like women before and after her, Mary wants to share her experience with another woman who can understand what she is experiencing. And Mary's first movement seems to be instinctual, to move into sanctuary, to move into safety, away from the centers of power and politics. Then at the sound of Mary's voice, the baby in Elizabeth's womb who will become, as we know, because we know the rest of the story, who will become John the Baptist, leaps for joy at her voice. Now, we shouldn't miss the irony here that the joy of this moment is, at least for all of us that know the end of the story, cast in shadows. We shouldn't we cannot help but remember that shortly after these two children are born, King Herod will issue an edict to have all male children, two years and younger, executed. Or we shouldn't forget that in their young adulthood, uh, Herod imprisons and executes John the Baptist. And then there's also, ultimately, Mary's own son, who would be executed on a cross. The challenge for us today is to try to ask ourselves, beyond this beautiful story of pregnancy and birth, what does this mean for us? And what does this mean for us today, this ancient story of these two women? I don't need to tell you, the truth is we live in a broken world. You know this. War, violence, poverty in the richest country in the world. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We have our own personal sorrows. Children die from drug overdoses and by suicide. Elderly parents slip away long before they die. Oh, and oh yes, climate change continues to wreak havoc across our country and the world.
And then there's the pandemic. You know, when it started in February, March of 2020, we all said, yeah, we'll do this online church thing for a couple of weeks, and then for Easter, we'll be back together again, right? That's what we all thought. That's what we all believed. And now we're getting ready to enter our third year with the current seven-day moving average of new deaths in the United States topping 1,100. And the lies, all the lies, lies that abound and for which those who are living in fear accept as truth. Bertrand Russell, the 19th century philosopher and mathematician, has said collective fear stimulates herd instinct and tends to produce ferocity toward those who are not regarded as members of the herd. We know this, don't we? But Luke has a good story to tell us today, filled with the promises of God. This scene that we hear today is a part of a larger overarching story of salvation that permeates not only the Gospel of Luke, but the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and John and the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and all of the New Testament. The overarching story that Luke tells at the open of, opening of his Gospel is a story about John who becomes the Baptist and Jesus who becomes the Messiah. Then the spotlight turns to this story of Mary and Elizabeth. These two lowly and shamed women through whom God has chosen to begin the transformation of the world. Interestingly enough, there are some unique elements of this story of two pregnant women, one young and unmarried, the other old. It is a story in which no men are present in which no rivalry between women is present, in which women are actually blessed, and a story in which women are prophetic agents of liberation. Women so often overlooked or ignored, both in society at large even today, and certainly in biblical narratives, have the only speaking roles in this story. Mary's first words prompt an immediate silent response from Elizabeth's unborn child. John leaps, acknowledging both Mary's presence and the significance of the child she carries in her womb. John's reaction to Mary's voice fulfills Gabriel's prophecy. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Already, John points to the coming one. Though Luke clearly signals that the unborn child's leaping is prompted by the Spirit, it is actually Elizabeth who becomes the prophetic voice in the story. I mean, she is the one who becomes anointed by the Spirit and who takes on the role of prophet and speaks the prophetic word in this scene. She is filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims what Mary has not yet told her, what is not yet visible to the eye, that Mary is pregnant. Further, through the Spirit, she knows whose Mary's child will be, for she calls Mary the mother of my Lord, my Messiah, the anointed one. Her prophecy will soon be fulfilled when her son prepares the way for the Lord 
And Elizabeth not only professes and blesses, not only professes, but blesses, is what I meant to say. <laughs> By declaring both Mary and the fruit of Mary's womb blessed, Elizabeth begins a series of blessings that weave through Luke's birth narrative and increase the tone of joy, delight, and praise. Mary will add her blessing to the chain of praising God for what God is doing at this moment in history. Elizabeth, however, sets up a pattern of social reversal by opening her arms and her home to this relative who has been shamed and whom everybody expects her to reject. Instead of shaming Mary, she welcomes her, blesses her, celebrates her, treating her as more honorable than herself. So the pregnancy that might have brought Mary shame brings joy, brings joy. And joy can run so deep, overshadowing our sorrow. Elizabeth sees beyond shamefulness of Mary's situation to the reality of God's love at work, even among those whom society excludes. This account of Mary and Elizabeth's meeting in it, we are invited to be inspired by the faith and courage of these women and reminded that we, like them, even in our brokenness, even in things that we have done that have been done to us to shame us, we can still be blessed. We still matter. And like them, we can join a lineage of prophets who have prophesied and have been prophetic witnesses to God's love in the world and have been agents of the life and love of Jesus Christ to our corner of the world and to the world, to all people. Now, I want to tell you something very interesting about this story. You know, it's written in Greek. And so when Elizabeth pronounces Mary blessed among women and proclaims that the fruit of Mary's womb is blessed. She uses a term, eulogemony, a Greek term, a Greek word, which emphasizes that both present and future generations will praise and speak of her and her child. But when she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by God, Elizabeth uses the word makaria, the same term Jesus will use to bless people in the Beatitudes. Mary is blessed because despite all of the expectations to the contrary, her condemned life has been reversed. She will be honored rather than shamed for bearing this child. But she has also been blessed with divine joy. Blessed, Makarios, because she has believed God. She has trusted God to do what God promises to do. A colleague of mine in the United, Me in the United Methodist, uh, you know, sometimes it just seeps in because this is where we are. But uh, in the United Church of Christ, Reverend Kim Samuel, pastor of Victory for the World Church in Stone Mountain, Georgia, wrote a UCC Still Speaking devotional recently, and he talked about when he was in the fifth grade, and he asked his science teacher, where do the stars go during the day? 
and the teacher told him, well, they don't go anywhere. You, you just see them because of the dominant, you, you just can't see them because of the dominant light of the star that we call the sun. And the stars shine during the day, just as they do at night. We just can't see them. He went on to talk about the bleakness in our world and how those stars seem to shine brighter than anything else, right? They, they, they fade out the real stars of God's creation, love, grace, mercy, kindness. And yet despite these fading brought on by hate and judgment and all of that, these stars still shine. And we are called to look for them. They continue to emanate light even when we cannot see them. Our faith, like Mary's and Elizabeth's, is like a star that refuses to stop shining even when it's not noticed. A star that refuses to stop shining even when other things around it get all the attention. Our faith, like Mary's and Elizabeth's, our trust of God's promises like theirs is a star that refuses to stop shining even when its brightness seems lost in the competition from other sources of brightness. It is relentless. So relentless that even after being ignored all day long, it continues to give light through the darkness of the night. Our faith, our trust in God, illuminates when it can be seen in no way lessens the consistency of its illumination when it can't be seen. Advent is about a light that refuses to go out. It's about the expectancy of new life that refuses to surrender to the, the hate and the judgment and the rays of distress that surround us. It is about a star of hope that will not surrender its light to any season of turmoil. This is who we are. This is who we are as people of faith. So with our faith, with our trust in God, we, like Elizabeth and Mary, trust that God will save and free us. Right here, right now, in this time and place, and in the hereafter, that God will be with us in all things. And may we, like these two women, give thanks to God, who has taken away our shame and our brokenness, and then we can respond to this grace of God's love for us by welcoming others who have been shamed and broken and become a community that support each other and others as we hope, as we wait, as we shine. This is our joy, our unspeakable joy. In the darkness as we await the coming of the light this Christmas. Amen. <laughs>